Okay, I'm going to jump right in. Verse 25, it says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? So we have an expert in the law, a lawyer who comes to Jesus and asks him this question, how can I gain eternal life? And it's not entirely sincere. We know this because we read here that he wanted to put him to the test, meaning there's something that he wants to challenge Jesus about. And assuming that he is like this expert in the law, then I think the way that he would see it is that the law is to be obeyed uh, meticulously. And that's the pathway toward eternal life, is just obeying it to the T, crossing all T's, dotting all I's. And so then Jesus, knowing this, because he's Jesus, and then he says, okay, well, okay, smart Alec. Um, well, how do you read the law? And he puts the ball back in his court, and this lawyer, being a smart guy, nets out the law and answers it correctly. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. So in essence, this lawyer responds correctly. He says, the law, all of it, if you were to sum it up, it's really about love. And it's, not, it's more than that. By citing this verse, he's saying, and if you love God, of course, you'll realize that God loves people and loves his fellow man, and then God would want me to be a source of love for my neighbors. And so that's all encapsulated in this verse. So then Jesus says, well, that's nice. <laughs> You've answered correctly. You've answered correctly. So do this, and you will live. Notice he says, okay, don't just feel this. He says, do this, meaning love is Love means action. And of course, what Jesus is trying to get the lawyer to think about is, or at least utter, is he's trying to expose the lawyer's lack of understanding of the true intention of the law. Yes, he answered correctly in that way, but he says, do this, do this, and you will live. And notice the lawyer's response. He says, he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Desiring to justify himself. So it was like, must have been piercing for him. It's like, do this. Oh man, I, do this. Okay, and then, so that's interesting that he would ask this question, who is my neighbor? He doesn't say, well, yeah, Jesus, how do I love? I don't understand love, so teach me. He doesn't say it that way. He says, who is my neighbor? It's kind of an obnoxious response to what Jesus is uh, like how Jesus responded. And, and you, but you get it. You totally understand why the law, lawyer would say this because he understands the implications of this command. Because if he were to love, if he were to love his neighbor as himself, he knows that there's liability that's attached to that. He knows that it's going to be inherently self-involving. So he just doesn't explain all of that to Jesus. And he says, let me just cut to the chase. Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor then? Because you don't mean for me to actually love the people in my life, do you, Jesus? That could get actually very time-consuming, and I don't have a lot of time, and it could be expensive. Like, I would have to buy boba for everyone in my sphere of influence. Now, you certainly don't want me to do that. And besides, if I were to love everyone like I love myself, I wouldn't even have the capacity to be able to do that 
within my own strength. And so he's asking Jesus this question, who is my neighbor? And in essence, by asking that, he's asking Jesus to help him recategorize people into two categories, neighbors and non-neighbors. Neighbors and non-neighbors. So how can I look at a person and quickly assess, you're my neighbor, you're not my neighbor. You're my neighbor, you're not my neighbor. And then reduce the number of people that he has to ultimately care for and love. So then how does Jesus even begin to answer such a question? Like, how would you answer that question? You have a person in need, like they're starving, and then she is your neighbor, and so you help that person, because like, yeah, that person's starving, so she's your neighbor. You should help that person. But what if the person is not starving? It's not like on the verge of dying. Then, like, is that person not your neighbor then? And if that person is in need of, I don't know, help with homework, but, and, the G, and their GPA is lower than 2.5 or something like that, <laughs> then neighbor, yes, I will help them. But if it's higher than 2.5, and um, they have other things going for them, then I don't help them. So it's like, it's, 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 it's like, how do you begin to answer this question? Who is my neighbor? And who is my non-neighbor? And Jesus being really patient, instead of answering that question directly, tells him this story for him and for all of us. And if you understand this story, you realize that Jesus is trying to answer a different question, which is, what does love look like? Or, how do I love? And so before we even get into that story, I, I'm going to just try something different throughout this message. In just Let's have a time to review what I just... Um, oh man, I realize nothing has been... Has, my slides haven't been advancing. Oh, that's bad. That's... Okay. All right. Okay. Uh, Yes? No? Sit back, guys. Yes? Okay. So here's a question that you could share with your neighbor, just as a quick review of what I just said. What is the essence of the lawyer's question, who is my neighbor? How does it reflect a common tendency in our own lives to define the scope of our love and compassion? Okay. Give you guys some time to talk about that.
All right. Okay. Hopefully that just got your mind thinking. And um, so that's the context in which Jesus shares this Good Samaritan story. So is my thing. Okay, great. So Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and depart, leaving him half dead. So he's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. This road is a famous road from being very dangerous, even down to this day. And the distance from Jerusalem to Jericho, it actually is about 17 miles. It goes down a steep hill. Here's like a kind of a map of how it would be. There's like um, 3,400 elevation gain difference, like feet. So it's like a really like, imagine going home, like going from Jericho to, to Jer- Jerusalem. That's like a steep hike if you've ever been on hikes. And, and on, in addition to that, it's a, it's a very like th- this road, this Jericho road is very narrow and it's under very rocky terrain. So then all these crevices on the side, so it's like easy for robbers to hide. And so here's a picture of the road today. And, and so it's not like this five lane highway where on the very side of the shoulder, you see something and you go, wow, is that like a bag? Is that like an animal? Is that like a package? No, it'd be very clear that if you ran across a man lying on the side of the road, then it would be only room for maybe two or three people. So it would be clear that you're avoiding this person because it would be unavoidable if you saw this person. So the robbers are stripped, uh, stripped this man, beat him, and then leave him half dead. My goodness. Stripped him, beat him, left him half dead. And uh, I was just thinking that isn't, like if we just take a test step back, isn't this like a description in many ways of what sin, Satan, the world does to us? If you just think about it from a sheer like, as we grow up, as we take in the value system of the world and we even buy into it and pursue it with reckless abandon, like there's a lot that I can, I think eventually over time that we can describe ourselves in this way. Maybe not now for you, but even for, for now. As some of you may be experiencing having been quote unquote stripped and beaten and carry around this kind of baggage. Like think about the world. We buy into its philosophy, be the best version of you, maximize your potential, but you do that. What if you're not good enough? And then the world who pre- previously loved on you uh, now suddenly you don't add value to them. There is incompetence. You're not pretty enough. You're not smart enough. You're not skilled enough. And in the process, like they discard you because you're no longer useful. And then what happened to you? In the what happened to you? Like you maybe lost some dignity, lied, cheated, uh, done some things that you were ashamed of. In the process of networking, lost some self-respect your capacity to love because you cut yourself off from people. And the world has very little desire to be your good shepherd and guide you through that time. So I was just noticing that this description of this person half dead, stripped, beaten, half dead by these robbers, like spiritually seeking, uh, uh, spiritually, uh, isn't this like the human condition? People striving and yet 
um, this is kind of like the destruction that ends up happening to them as they pursue these pathways. Now, by chance, a priest was going down the road and when he saw him, it says he passed by the other side. And likewise, a Levite came to the place and saw him and passed by both the priest and the Levite. And who are these people? These are the people who work in the temple. That's why they're going from Jerusalem to Jericho. They're going back home. Presumably, they went there for work, and they're going back home. And the Levites, who are they? They're the people who work in the temple. They're the ones that do the background work, the maintenance. They set up and take down. You know, They're the ones that do the operations, uh, do like the mic check, and make sure that the praise is going smoothly. And in some cases, they actually lead the praise. The priests are the ministers, are the, pa- are the pastors. They, the, the people come to them, they confess their sins, they make the sacrifices, they bring them and connect them back to God. So each of them have a role. They have a weekly rhythm. They have tasks assigned to them. And in that box, in that professional occupation, they care for people. And then they meet people's needs. And they're accustomed, actually, to receiving people who are in need. But here's the thing. Of all the people then, of all the people that you would think to help others, it would be these people. And this, the fact that they pass by on the other side, Jesus means to tell this story in a way that's disturbing to us because the person that's asking this question is a religious person and the person that's receiving this parable are religious people. And so it's how is it possible that you could have an outer semblance of religiosity, but inside be so utterly calloused to another suffering that you see and you come across a person that's obviously dying, it's half dead, they're not dead, and they literally avoid this person and go on their way. And I'm sure they all had their rationalizations. Because the priest can't come in contact with a corpse. Otherwise, they would be ceremonially defiled and he can't do his job. It's been a long day also. So I'm sure they wanted to get back home to be with their family. Maybe that sort of rationalization is coming on, is going on. And so the danger, I said earlier that it's disturbing. The danger is that the people of God Ironically, as they become more and more enmeshed in Christian fellowship and they become more Bible-centric, in, so to speak, uh, we become more distant and it's possible to even be more uncaring to non-believers or to people who are in need. And so I'm glad that as a network and, and as I said, as we watch this video, we are a network. We have a culture at our church that's been established for over 40 years from the very get-go that is outward-facing, that is evangelistic, that moves toward people who are in need. And I really hope to build that culture here in Boston. So then, verse 33, it says, But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had Compassion. 
So this Samaritan, who is this Samaritan? And a Samaritan is like a half Jew, a full heretic, you know? If you know that story, he's the, they're like a mixed breed of people. They are religious people, but they're misguided. They are the uneducated ones. They are ignorant. They are unenlightened. But it's interesting that it's the Samaritan that comes and shows compassion. And it's also interesting that we don't know much about this man that's on the ground, except that he's a man. We don't know his family. We don't know whether this person's religious or not religious. We don't know like whether or not this person has a family. And in some ways, it's like Jesus being the master storyteller. I would assume that Jesus intended it that way to demonstrate that the Samaritan just gives this person value, knowing nothing about his background, knowing no other category, but just confers value by showing compassion. And maybe that's the point. It's interesting that then it's the Samaritan who mimics God the most out of these three. He is, unlike the priest and the Levite, the one that saw, noticed, and then showed compassion. And compassion is this like grand word in the Bible to describe God's feel, feeling toward us. He treats us with that level of value even though we don't deserve it and we, even though we don't merit it. And so it's like the primary way that God relates to us, it's through pity and mercy and compassion. And he had compassion and God had compassion on us because isn't it true that if we think about our story, those of you who are Christian here, that at one point, figuratively speaking, we were lying on the side of the road, robbed of sin, as I said earlier, destroyed and enslaved by our appetites. All the good stuff in our life has been ripped away from us because of our own folly, because of the world's promise and of all the idols that we should pursue, and yet it delivered nothing. And then God passed by us and he had compassion on you and I. And to the extent that you feel that, particularly in this season of Thanksgiving, then we will have the capacity to feel like the Samaritan did. To the extent that we recognize in many ways ourself, that we were just like that person left half dead, and the person to be pitied, then to that extent, we will understand and we will feel the need to move toward others because we, it is hard for us to forget then God's grace and how it chased us down. And let's never get too far removed from that truth. So verse 34, he went to him and bound him up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. This phrase, he went to him, that's tough. That's tough to go to anybody because you know what that looks like, actually. He knows what that looks like. He, by going to him and not avoiding this person, he knows full well that this is going to take something out of him. He knows that it's going to be laborious. This will wreck his agenda. And at the very least, it will be an in inconvenience and as soon as you go to somebody, here's the thing. 
You claim ownership over the person whether you like it or not because now you see the person's need. Isn't that what happens? The moment you go to someone and you meet their need, this nameless body, maybe even issue, becomes a person, becomes a name. And suddenly you have ownership. But think about somebody who loved you. Think about somebody who cared for you. And I'm not talking about a blood relative here. Someone who shared the gospel with you who is not a blood relative. They didn't have to. They were a stranger. They were not not your friend. You know, that really blows my mind when I think back on the people who poured into me. Dating back to my youth days and my youth pastor. Like, we had nothing to do with each other. And... He could have simply gone his way. He had a life, you know? He could have simply gone his way and passed me by. But all those moments where he showed compassion on me, not because I was cool or interesting or funny, which I had thought at the time, but because now I realize it's because out of this understanding of how God loved him. So it's risky. When you go to anybody, as soon as you move toward that need, you're now responsible. And that's the thing. The, more, the closer you get, the more need you see. <laughs> you know, it's sometimes nicer to just like, oh, yeah, you're a needy person from a distance. Yeah, bless you. Let me say a prayer for you. As soon as you go closer, that person who appeared even presentable, there's all these shapes of brokenness in that person. And you start to see, oh my gosh, this person's bleeding. Better bandage this person's wounds. Oh man, I better disinfect with oil to speed the healing. And I need wine. Um, Wait a minute. He can't walk. I didn't notice that broken bone. I need to put him on my animal. I need to take him to the ER. And you see how this goes. You open up a can of worms as soon as you start to have compassion and you actually act on it. So in that sense, ministry and compassion must be taught because it's not natural to us. Because it's like, I don't want to move toward that need. It's like compassion fatigue, right? I don't want to move toward that need. Because we are inherently self-preserving and we don't know how to give complete strangers the dignity of your care. Think about that. Like, I was a very selfish person before the gospel. I had to learn this after I experienced God's love for me. All my life, and I think it is true of us, all of our lives, what we reserve in our hearts in terms of love and care is for that future, what, romantic partner or for the beloved family member. But to strangers, people who you have no, like, connection with, other than, I don't know, like, you meet this person and say, hey, you're from the same city, Okay, the same state. Okay, but then that's like a thin connection. So we need to take that first step. I would encourage you to copy. Here's a practical advice. Copy the actions of people that you look up to. Because we are inherently selfish, we need to learn selfless behavior. And as you do, you will find that you'll have a capacity you never knew you had, just like the kids in that video. And then you will start learning some skills like cooking, And cleaning, like, they're all, like, washing dishes, like, sixth graders. Oh, my gosh. 
Um, and as you do, you'll become like the Samaritan, competent, big-hearted, generous, a person who mimics the heart of God. So the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So you get the sense that this is not the first time that this Samaritan is caring for someone. He just knows what to do. He's got his first aid kit handy. He happens to have it like in his backpack. He's got an animal. He's got, he knows how to like put the person on top of that animal, takes him to the 